Is he worthy of that worship? Is he a God who is other, who is not part of his creation and set above and worthy of your worship, of our worship, of the church's worship through the ages? Is he glorious and majestic and above and beyond? That's the question that we want to look at this morning. We want to look at the glory and the majesty of God. You see, we live in a day and age when even within the church, there's a tendency to bring God down. Down, 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 down. To the point where it's not that much different from those who have a maybe the New Age religion or this one-ism, as my friend, Carl, our friend Carl Teichrib, I was talking with him this week, of this idea that God is not other, but He is just the force of which we all participate in. And it is all one. Right? And that idea has crept into the church to where we blend this mysticism and these ideas of even witchcraft into it, where we somehow are engaging with the forces of the earth. But folks, I think as we go to Scripture, we see something very different. We have one God, the great I Am, who is above and beyond anything that we can ever begin to imagine. He is all glorious and all majestic. And yet that God created. And He created a glorious and majestic creation, which you would expect an all-glorious and majestic God to do. And He put His glory on display in that creation. And He put it on display that we might get a sense, a little drop in the bucket, of His majesty and His glory. And so when you go out and you hike through the woods this summer, as you go to the beach and look at the beach and the, and the ocean before you and the beautiful sky and around here, the sky and the sky, no mountains, no beach, no... In the, in the Midwest, that's what we take pictures of, water and sky, you know, because we don't have beach and mountains... When you see that, you're not communing with God through nature, as some might say. You're letting creation point your eyes upward to the all-glorious God who created that and said, here, here's a little taste of my glory. And you may be blown away by the scene of mountains. This winter, some of us may be blown away by this glorious display of snow. Sorry, it's coming. Except for you, Josh. I know you like it. And we see these little tastes, but we live in a world where also, not only are we, are, is God brought down and just made an impersonal force among us that we can participate in, but we are blinded. We are looking out at a world full of so much pain, so much chaos, so much war, so much disappointment, so much struggle, that we cannot clearly see the glory and the wonder and the majesty of the one who created all. Sin and the God of this world, Satan, have done a work to blind people's eyes, which we read a short time ago in Second Corinthians. You see, our world can easily be seen as a dark, depressing ugly, inglorious world full of despair. And apart from the beauty and splendor of God, we would, we would have a pretty accurate picture of that. But God is greater and more glorious and more hope-filled than anything that we on this earth can face. But the problem is, we can't see God. We can only see these manifestations of His glory, of His wonder, of His majesty. And we have His Word. And we have His Spirit working within us, affirming His Word and pointing us to that One. And so as we think on the glory and the wonder and the majesty of God this morning, I want us to consider that it is God who is who has been painting with His brush on His canvas a display of His glory and of His majesty for us to behold in wonder and to look at, not to just 
fall and swoon over this picture called creation. But to look at it and step back and go, what does that tell us about him? And to in wonder then to, to worship. Because he is worthy of our worship. He is deserving of our praise. God's glory that he has revealed paints a living masterpiece which points to a reality of his far greater, his all-surpassing and overwhelming glory and majesty. Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Don't lose that. Because he talks about salvation of his people before he ever even gets to other issues of creation. And I think that is one of the most all-glorious things about God is this thing of, cre- of, of, his, of salvation. But listen, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. It's like, done. He wins. Boom. Match that. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord. So notice that, that, that he's, he's talked about declaring God's glory, but then he's talked about God's glory. Right. So there's two parts to God, this glory thing. All right. There is this idea that there is both an, an inherent glory that God has and a glory that we give him by proclaiming, yes, he is worthy of that. He is that. OK. So now listen, he says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Well, we're not giving it to him. He has it. He has it all. We're just acknowledging, yes, you have it all. And in doing, we're glorifying him to the level he deserves. Ascribe to the Lord, the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. You see, God is glorious. God is majestic. So much so that we, if we truly see it, we, if we truly see it, if we see it for what it is and not just something beautiful, but as a revelation of the beauty of God, we can't help but respond to it in praise and in worship. You see, our current study that we, we call the great I am, knowing and loving the one true God, is for this very purpose. The idea is this, that let's with sermon after sermon participate in this masterpiece that God is painting and say, look, this is what God looks like. This is who he is. He is worthy of his, of your praise, of our worship, of our very existence, because he is infinite. He is eternal. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. And you go right on through. See, that's the purpose, is to help us, first of all, see his glory, and then respond in saying, yes, he is glorious. It's ascribing to him who he really really is. Both majesty and glory are things that we ascribe to him and that are spoken of here. Majesty focuses on the impressiveness of God, specifically in his beauty, his scale, or his dignity. He is is all beautiful. He is immense beyond measure, and he is to be reverenced above all. He is dignified. That's, that's this idea of majesty. It's like when a king or queen walks in and all the pomp and circumstance, there is a sense of, whoa, that's amazing. You know, rather than just you or I walking in a room and like, oh, hey, you know, there's, there's this impressiveness to it. Okay. I'm a boy from a, a small town in Kansas. Impressiveness is not part of my culture. Okay, it's that's not not part of that little town other than it's basketball. All right. But glory is 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 focuses on the high renown of God based on his magnificence and beauty. It's the idea that, that he is 
first of all, he possesses this glory, as we've said, and that he is also worthy of anything you can say of him that is, that is in keeping with his glory. You can never do enough. In other words, you can't get high enough. And if we praised all of his work just in creation, we could only begin to praise his glory because we've not yet seen all his glory. You see what I mean? Creation is just a part of that. It's just a little segment of it. And so you can say everything that is to be said or sung or, or written or, or whatever you can do to, to praise that and still just be a, just a beginning of trying to praise his glory. The Israelites witnessed God's glory in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. But because they had witnessed God's glory in the wilderness and did not wholly follow him, nearly an entire generation died in the wilderness. It was, he said, because you saw my glory, we, you saw his glory, and you did not wholly follow him, you will not enter. You see, there is a proper response. Once we see his glory, we are to be responding properly. Throughout Scripture, glory is described in terms of what God has or what God is due. And He's worthy of everything in our response to His glory. They saw it. They saw a little bit of God's glory. And they were led through the wilderness. And yet, they didn't wholly follow Him. And God says, you saw my glory. You saw a visual representation of my glory. And somehow you, you didn't follow Wait till we get to the New Testament and we think about Christ and the glory of that before we start casting stones back at the Old Testament Israelites. You see, these two words for majesty and for glory both derive from a root that means to rise. Think of elevating something, right? But we immediately go, wait, we can't elevate God. You're right. There is a sense in which God's glory has already, it it is as high as it can be. It, It just is. Okay? So... When we think too highly of ourselves, we, that's the same root of pride. That's not a good thing. Okay? That's, that's a similar word. But when God thinks highly of himself, it isn't pride. It's thinking accurately of himself. It's his deserving reputation. It's not about pride in himself. It stands for God's reputation among his people and that which deserves this glory. We might get the sense of the word by saying that God is rightly thought of more highly than any other being in heaven and earth. In fact, as we've said, one cannot possibly think highly enough of him. Now, in this earth, we've got a whole lot of glory hounds, right? What is a glory hound? That's someone who's doing something to try to get attention, to try to get fame, to try to get people to recognize them and say, wow, they're amazing. They're glory hounds. They're pursuing glory. Whether it's, you could go on YouTube and find a bazillion of them. You can go on Twitter and they're tweeting, trying to act like they're so smart. And and they're seeking someone to get attention and get then to go viral, right? They want to go, everybody wants to go viral. It used to be that viral was a negative thing, uh, right? That meant that, sorry, that's a virus and we can't do anything about it. And now viral is like, oh man, I want to go viral, all right? You see... We are glory hounds. God is not a glory hound. God is not looking for what he does not deserve. God is simply wanting us to see him for all that he is and to enjoy and delight in that. Consider ways that we elevate people on earth. We devote time and attention and conversation about them. Maybe it's a, an actor or a politician or a, or a singer or some other famous person. We write books about them. We make videos and art about them. We may emulate them, their dress, their styles, their quotes. Sometimes we, and I don't mean you, I mean like in the world, people even stalk them, right? You, you, you get so consumed with them that you, you sit outside their house and you, you watch them and see if they're coming and going. You find ways to, to get to shake their hand and have a picture with them, right? Those are ways that we glorify people. Well, there's one Twilight fan, the movie series. Um, a 35-year-old mom turned her home into a tribute to the vampire-themed movies with posters, paperbacks, and action figures, and even board games. She won People Magazine's Superfan Award. That's some award. 35-year-old mom. 
Steve Petrick he has a collection of Harry Potter memorabilia and merchandise that is a, Potter, a Potterhead's dream. Okay, he spent more than thirteen thousand dollars on clothes, wands, posters, mugs, books, basically anything and everything that is Harry Potter related that he could find. The collection landed him a spot in the 2013 Guinness Book of World Records. Wow, that's impressive. That's how, those are ways in which we bring glory to things and to people on this earth. Hear me ask you this. Are these people worthy of that glory? You know, there are rich and the famous and the powerful and, and they all draw a crowd. And you've seen it. But are they really worthy of such adoration? And you can say, just a minute, there are some people that are pretty talented, gifted people. And I'll give you that. Let's say that that's true. And it is. There are amazing people with incredible talents and gifts. And, and, and yet, are they really worth it, worthy of the glory and praise? To a degree. But I'm asking a different question. Are they into their very core? of who they are and everything they do deserving of the kind of praise and adoration and following that we would give them? And the answer would have to be a resounding no. No one can measure up to that. No one is able to measure up to that. The proper response to seeing that is to honestly give praise to God. To congratulate them, to encourage them, to, to keep on. I mean, we have a brother, Patrick Fatah, who on a regular basis will play at this piano. And I know he spends like hours and hours and hours and hours and hours each week practicing. That's an amazing thing. He has a God-given talent. But ultimately, could Patrick do that if he... Could, let me ask this a different way. Could Stephen Schultz ever become that good on the piano? And I can tell you, No. I couldn't. I could practice as much as he does, and I could never be like Patrick on the piano. I'd have to give praise to God for giving him certain gifts and abilities and talents that then Patrick participated with in order to hone those gifts in such a way to use them for the glory of God. And in that way, we give glory to God rather than lifting up people. So what's the proper response to seeing God's glory? Well, obviously, to give him reverence and worship and praise. Listen to the account of in Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. Israel was dedicating the temple of Jehovah and Solomon finished his prayer in Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. And it says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. A physical manifestation of God's glory. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord and saying, For he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. That is a powerful manifestation of God's glory. And the proper response is this, to humble ourselves and to acknowledge he is all glorious. Now, this is, there's nothing I've really said this morning that is, for the average believer, one who attends church on a regular basis, earth-shattering. This is something that you, you know. But the reality is, is that we struggle with living this out. You see, Scripture begins and ends with God. It begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right there, we've got God, and we've got Him manifesting His glory. We go to the end of Scripture, down to Revelation 21, and it says, listen to this, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates were made a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, and like transparent glass. And we would stop there going, whoa, look at those streets. Those are amazing. Look at that unbelievable avenue. That is glorious. But wait, there's more. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. It begins with God manifesting His glory and it ends with us forever with the Lord in glory and everything lit by Him. What an amazing thought. 
That it, the glory of God is, is what he displayed and it's what will always be displayed. It's how we'll see everything in eternity. You won't see anything apart from God's glorious radiance making it visible. And it makes you wonder, isn't that a sense of what's really happening now? He created it all anyway. He made that sun that we get to see it everything by. And there's a sense in which that should lead us to give this same kind of praise. You see, God's glory is to be our delight now and in eternity. That's at the very heart of God's glory. It is to be beheld and it is to be delighted in. And that's our first main point here this morning. That the wonder of God's glory is on infinite display for our delight. I want to pause here. Because I don't know if there's very many sermons in which I've felt as incompetent and incapable of trying to communicate such a majestic truth. How do you do this? How do you do it? And so we're going to have a lot of scripture today. And I hope that you will track with me as we go through this and we'll we'll move through somewhat quickly through these next few points to understand just how it is that, first of all, that God created everything and even exists. And the best way in which we can give him glory is to delight in him. Is just delight in him. And you say, what about obedience? Does that not first begin with delight? Does not that not begin first with this sense of, yes, you are worthy. You're amazing. Oh, how could I not obey you? Your word is a delight to me. It is a, is a it is like honeycomb. I mean, think of how the psalmist described it. He, it's in these words of delight. And then what did it do? How shall a young man keep his way clear, clean? By taking heed thereto thy word. That's at the heart of all this. The wonder of God's glory is truly on infinite display for our delight. And I want to highlight two ways in which it is. First of all, as witnessed in creation. We've seen that already in two of the passages that we've read. First of all, we read it in Psalm 96, 1 through 13, where he talks about all the the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord. He made the heavens. We read about it in Second Chronicles chapter 7, where it says that, and the, it talks about how that, the, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles, First Chronicles 29, um, verses 10 through 13. I look down, I'm like, that's not the right reference. First Chronicles 29, 10 through 13. Therefore, David is now, is now in the presence of God, and he says, he blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O God. You're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great. And to give strength to all. And now, we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. That is the heart of this beauty of the glory of creation. First, he is glorious in creating, and he is glorious in reigning. And Psalms 93 describes it this way. The Lord reigns, he is robed, in majesty. That picture, and that is poetry, right? He didn't literally have this thing called majesty that he puts on. The picture is this. It is trying to evoke both a, both knowledge and an emotional response to this. Like God takes all of creation and everything around him and he puts it on and says, my creation declares my majesty. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So we see in creation this wonderful majesty. Now, you can, I I could have brought in video after video of different scenarios that are glorious. We talked about it. We thought about it. We even tried it. It didn't work. But I tell you what, 
every single one of us have been somewhere, have seen video, have, have, have seen pictures, whether it's of mountains or, or gorgeous valleys in Switzerland or wherever you might go. But I challenge you to go this afternoon, go home and go to the NASA site and look at the Hubble telescope photos and then zoom and then zoom and then zoom and realize that these structures you saw out there are composed of bazillions of stars and just be blown away that the God of the universe is more glorious than that. Not just a little. Infinitely greater. Infinitely more glorious. And then wonder, is he worthy of my worship? Is he worthy of my praise? Is he worthy of me delighting in? And the question is like, that is a stupid question. Right? Because we can, there is such delight and yet we stop there. We stop. We stop so short of where we are called to be. But you know, as much as creation can demonstrate the glory of God, the greater manifestation of the glory of God is really in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 2, and unless you think we're at a Christmas message, it was July 25th, so we could just celebrate Christmas in July, right? The angels announced the birth of Jesus, and what is it that they specifically said on announcing that? In telling, hey, we brought great news and of great joy that will be for all people. Unto you born this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. You see, the entrance of Christ for the purpose of redeeming mankind evoked the highest praise from a band of angels. And so therefore, there is clearly none more deserving of glory than Christ. One who came from the eternal glories of heaven and set that aside and stepped down into this dirty, dark earth and humbled himself to live in this world, experiencing the pain experiencing the suffering and trials that every one of us face, and even more, falsely accused, tortured, broken, and crucified at the hands of arrogant men. Think about it. He was the one who the Proverbs said, and John 1 says, spoke into existence these nebula and these stars and this earth. And now we see him broken and bruised and crucified and laying in a tomb, but not staying there, but rising on the third day. And we find in Philippians chapter 2 just how glorious he is. Therefore, because of that, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow. Every knee. And we make often the point that, yes, it is every person will one day bow the knee. But get focus on this. Every person. The greatest person who ever has ever lived. The richest person who's ever lived. The most talented person who has ever lived. The most beautiful person who's ever lived. The nicest person who's ever lived. Will bow their knee. And proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how glorious. You see, the rest of this story is still being written. His glory calls to you and it calls to me right now to respond with bended knee. Acknowledging His worthiness and His glory. Every man, every woman, every boy and every girl. To bend their knee and acknowledge that he is all glorious and majestic. And yet, we live real lives. We're thinking about how hungry we are. We're thinking about how busy the week is. We're thinking about the the struggles that we have in our homes right now. What's going on with our our teens. What's going on with our, our baby. What's going on in our health. We struggle. We are, we are overcome with the stuff of this world. And I wonder if that wasn't a little bit 
at the Mount of Transfiguration, when, when on the Mount of Olives, the, the, Jesus took up on the Mount with him, Peter, James, and John, and took him up there, and then, as Peter describes it, that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. He, that to him, as he describes it, was a moment of affirmation. Here's what he said. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. You see, taking them up on the mountain in the middle of this mess that they were in and then taking them back down to be disappointing again, <laughs> right? They went right off that mountain and, and really struggled even there. But there's a sense in which to expose them to his glory had to have been a confidence builder to say, yes, he is who he's been saying he is and we can follow him with confidence. And in a sense... That is what, whether you walk out the back door in the morning and see a beautiful sunrise, or you see a gorgeous sunset, or if you, want, you just consider this a little infant that you hold, there should be a sense of wonder and awe. You see, if God honors and glorifies Jesus Christ as he did at that Mount of Transfiguration, how much more? How much more should we give him glory? See, when we comprehend God's overwhelming splendor and respond in adoring delight, God is glorified. But sin has blinded us. Idolatry has deceived us. In brokenness, in darkness, in our grief, we struggle to really see the beauty and wonder and glory and majesty of God. We long for that beauty. We long for that majesty. We we look for it. And we chase it all over the world. But the problem is, is that we chase it in the wrong places. The glory of God, which should be our delight, really becomes a dread. Because we do pursue it everywhere else. And mankind has pursued it everywhere else. And therefore, to consider the glory of God in light of my life, my sin, becomes pretty humbling. Pretty, at times, even disturbing. Because if I can think the thoughts that I think and think that somehow God doesn't know or doesn't care, then I have a small view of his glory. If I can do the things I do and say the things I say in the privacy of my home or in a relationship, then I have a very small view of God's glory. I have a very small view of his majesty. And I need to have my eyes lifted up. But you know what? It is so easily done that our eyes are blinded to the truth. In fact, we're born that way. We're born blind to the reality of God's glory. To be sure, this failure to delight in God and to ascribe to God His glory is something that has eternal consequences. You see, mankind's blindness to the glory of God is... Not only a deadly reality, but until we come to Christ, it's our deadly reality. And for everyone who's not come to Christ, it's their deadly reality. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. And so what is the response to this? The response to this is what he says next. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Having received sight... To see this glory of Jesus Christ, we then turn and say to others, Look, He is glorious. He is worthy of your praise. And that's the sad fact, is that there are those who are perishing. You see, the thief 
who has come to steal, kill, and destroy Satan himself, is the thief of spiritual sight. He is intent on keeping mankind in blindness. We were created for God's glory, but mankind is blind to acknowledging God and, and ignorant of his beauty. Don't get me wrong. We're not saying that the unbeliever can't see beauty in creation. But it stops there. It's, it's not... And think of that again. If that's as big as it gets, as great as it gets, you're missing the even greater glory. There's a glory of God that he said, I'll let you see some of it. But it should point our eyes to him and say, I am the glorious one. And that's exactly what Satan wants. The one who is the angel of light is in the business of deceiving and blinding so that we will not look past the end of our nose at the glory of God. In fact, the goal of spiritual blindness is to detract from God's glory. God has immersed us in beauty, yet we fail to see it for what it is. In fact, I would say that many believers in the church struggle with something like art. We struggle with that. Music we might do a little bit better with because we've incorporated that. But we struggle with art. Folks, you understand that, that just like anything else, any other gift and any other talent, art ultimately should, is an expression of beauty. That's the goal, right? And you may have a different understanding of one beauty and another, but, but it is an expression to try to see through one person's eyes, a bit of beauty of this world. And you say, but some of it's so dark. It's still, there's beauty even in some of that. And we struggle, we just tend to throw everything out except, you know, give me some of the old masters, you know, from the medieval ages when they painted pictures of baby white Jesus, you know, sitting there, you know, with his glowing white mother and father, um, which he was not, you understand, I'm being facetious. That we're okay with that, but then we can tend to be like, eh, the rest of that, you know, if it's realism, I'm good with it because, yeah, it's just crazy. Folks, we have to, the point is this everything should point us back to the wonder and glory of God and how He created people and how He created their ability to create. And, the, and folks, that should bring us wonder. So, what do we do instead of really responding to the beauty that he's put us in, we instead gorge ourselves not on his glory, but we gorge ourselves on temporal pleasure, temporary beauty. We're satisfied with the beauty of our own making, external bodily beauty, architectural beauty, beauty of systems, beauty of experiences, beauty of food and drink, beauty of clothing and cars and homes. They become an end in themselves. Always exchanging the permanent and better glory of God for the temporary and lesser glory of ourselves. The result, the blind are perishing. They will forever perish unless they repent and worship. The consequence of this blindness is devastating and deadly and forever. Friend, If this describes your condition, if you have not beheld the glory and wonder and beauty of God, specifically in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, friend, you're perishing. No amount of good works, no amount of philosophy, no amount of giving, no amount of of participating in service in the church will ever bring you to the glories of heaven. You are perishing. You're perishing now. Not just then. You're perishing now. You're just as hopeless today as you will be in eternity unless you repent. The good news is this. That now you can repent. You can cease from your labors and trust in the work of Christ. You can trust in His work and He gets the glory rather than trusting in your own work where you get the glory. And you're the center of your kingdom. Let his kingdom reign. Let us ascribe to him the glory that he's due. Because he is the lamb who was slain on our behalf. That we might live. Give him the glory. Instead, 
Mankind remains fools apart from God. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 says this, The fool as in, has said in his heart, There's no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. What does he see? They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And you go, but, 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 but. No. On your own, your good, on your goodest day, is but filthy rags. There's one righteous and only one in whom you can trust. And if you're blinded to that, my prayer for you today is that the word of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, would open your eyes. And folks, that is exactly what the word of God, the word of God and the spirit of God is busy doing. And we read about that in Second Corinthians. Listen to this. Second Corinthians three sixteen through 18, just a little earlier than what we read a moment ago. When one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed, but the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. How does this happen? 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for God, for Jesus' sake. Listen again. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? Of the glory of God. How? In the face and person of Jesus Christ. So we, we, that, that light shine out of darkness speaks to those who were perishing in darkness. God spoke out of, uh, in His light, spoke into the darkness, gave us light in our hearts to see His glory. How? In Jesus Christ. The result then is this. We have life and we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. And what then happens? The Lord, who is Spirit, then gives us freedom from that darkness, freedom from the chains that we were bound in, and His Spirit does a mighty work, an amazing work of transformation. Listen to what it said there in chapter 3 again. And we all, now that we have unveiled faces, we can see clearly beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of Jesus Christ. How? By the work of the Spirit. From one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. You see, the Trinity is involved in your transforming work to restore your delight in the glory of God. He, and you say, that's, that's kind of, isn't that refining this down to a very small, no, you're thinking too small of glorifying God. You're thinking too small of delighting in God because isn't that the great command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might of which we are incapable of when we are blind and dead in our trespasses and sin, but through Christ we have life that then we might see Him for what He is and respond to Him in delight more and more and more. And as we respond to His delight, what does it say? We are transformed by the work of the Spirit one degree after another. Until what? We resemble more and more Jesus Christ. Are you being transformed? Are you beholding the wonder and majesty and glory of God and being, and, and being transformed by the work of the Spirit? Because that's the work that God's doing. You see, God spoke. He sent His Son and He gave His Spirit and it's all right in those little verses right there. And that is what He is busy doing. Are you participating in that work of being refined into His image that you might give glory and bring glory to Him? How do we do that? There's something that God really impressed on my heart probably about 15, 16 years ago that if you've been in youth ministry or around youth ministry, you've heard me talk about it before, but this is the best way I know to explain it to me. And I hope it's helpful to you. That as I can delight in the glory of God, as I grow in my knowledge of Jesus, okay, which comes back to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God who said... Let light shine out of darkness as shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God. There's 
knowledge. I need to know God as He is, as revealed by God, and as in, in, for, in reality, not as I perceive Him. But I need to know God. We need to know Him in an ever-increasing measure. Because if I just settle here with my kindergarten understanding of who Jesus is, that's a good start. A child can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and that's a wonderful start. But if I stay there, and I'm not being transformed, I'm not growing in my knowledge. Why is the most important reason for you to be in the Word of God? It's that you might be transformed into His image, and by looking more like Jesus, you bring glory to Him, because you draw attention to Him, not to you. The more you look like Jesus, the more people see Jesus, and the more He's glorified. He is, receives the praise he's due. So I know Jesus. Here's the, so, but here's the deal. If I know him as he is, not as I think he is, but if I know him as he reveals himself, both in creation and through the, especially through the word of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, then I will love him. He is, he is altogether lovely. He, you say, well, but what about this? No, no, no. When you understand him as he is, that's why we need to keep growing in our understanding. If I understand him to a point and I'm saying, but, oh, then you need to grow in your understanding. If you come to these big points where you say, but, I don't know. Now, to know Jesus is to love him because he's altogether lovely. And if you love him, we've already, and you'll see where this is coming because it's right there in the text. If you love him as, as you've come to know the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, what happens? You're transformed. Chapter 3, verse 18. As we are beholding the glory of the Lord, where do we see that? In the face of Christ, are being transformed into the same image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. And we live Jesus That's the product. That's what it looks like. To live to the glory of God is to be forever being transformed into His image. And in that sense, we are beginning to share in the glory of the Lord. And what does, what do we find in Romans chapter 8? That whomever He justifies, He sanctifies, and who He sanctifies, He has glorified. You see, one day we will be glorified in the sense that we won't be like this. We'll be, we won't be exactly like Christ because we're not going to be God. We don't become gods. But we are glorified in our bodies resembling Him as much as we ever will. And, and, and Paul was so convinced of this that he said, I am convinced of this very thing, that He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it in that day. We begin sharing in that Beautiful glory now. Why? Not so that we can look, well, look at me, I'm extra glorified today. No, it's so that people might say, wow, what happened to you? Man, let me tell you what happened to me. Jesus Christ saved me. His Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God, is transforming me to the glory of God. You see, God is glorified as Jesus Christ is magnified by His church through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. That's how God is glorified in His church. Not because we've got it all together, but because we are continually being transformed and we are magnifying Him. What does that magnify mean? Having taught science, I think it's really important that we highlight the difference. We are not doing microscope magnification where we're looking at something tiny and blowing it up. This is telescope kind of magnification. Something that seems distant and small, we look and go, whoa, that is awesome. That's how the church is able to magnify Jesus as we bring Jesus to our neighborhood, to your street, to your work, to your team, to your classroom, and you bring Jesus up close and personal. And behold, whoa, whoa, that's amazing. God is glorified as we delight in Him and as we are transformed by Him. But let me warn you, and I can refer you back, you can look it up, but there is a warning that God gave Cain that is the opposite of this. We are not only transformed by the glory of God, 
can also be transformed by transgression. You see, Cain was warned by God saying, Why are you so angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He did not. He killed his brother and was cursed as a result. You see, there is this spiral effect. And friend, heed this warning. Transgression will transform you. If, if sin is crouching at your door today and there is a temptation there, if there is a bitterness, if there is an anger, if there is lust, if there is malice, it will not be just content to sit there at your door. You will either need to rule it by your nearness to seeing the face of Christ, the glory of God in the face of Christ drawing near to Him and fleeing sin, or it will transform you. It can happen in a moment. It can happen over the decades, but it will happen. But hear this encouragement. For everyone who is in Christ, we have not only the great joy of living for the glory of God, but to enjoy God's glory for all eternity. Listen to what 1 Peter 5 says here, and this, is, and this we close. And after you've suffered a little while, maybe it's 20 years, 60 years, 70 years, 91 years, 100 years, 120, I don't know. After a little, you've suffered a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you into His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you hear the intimacy of that? He says, welcome into the glory of God forever. Then He Himself, God Himself, it says, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is our hope. Not that we somehow get it all right here, but that we are being transformed degree by degree into His glory, that He gets the glory, and that one day we will delight in His glory forever. And in that time, the in-between time, we rest in Him who is able. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to You as the one who is all glorious. And we recognize that we could never begin to proclaim the glory to the level that we need. And so, God, we pray that your spirit, which your word says happens, will take your word and shed it on the hearts of men and women and boys and girls today that our eyes might be opened more and more and more to the glory and wonder of God. And so, Lord, we, we pray this, that you would be glorified in and through us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.